This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? Happy Monday or whatever day it is when you get around to actually listen to this. We've got a lot of cool things in the works to bring you guys a lot more content. One of the things we're going heavier on is our video content. We just dropped two more videos this week, so go check it out on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. This week, we had a great chat with Ted Gutierrez of securitygate.io. As the oil and gas industry becomes more and more digital, we're also becoming more and more vulnerable to cyber attacks. There's been many high profile attacks and data leaks in the consumer world over the past few years, but I personally think that there hasn't been enough tension on cybersecurity uh, in the oil and gas industry. So we really enjoyed this conversation and Ted is just a fun guy to talk with. But really quickly, before we get to the episode, this episode is brought to you by our good buddies over at Well Database. We had their CEO, John Farrell, on the show quite a while back and recently had them show off a full demo of Well Database on the bullpen. If this is your first time hearing about them, Well Database is our go-to provider for all things oil and gas data. We've used them for at least the last year and couldn't be happier. They have production data, completions data, frac data, permitting, logs, and a whole lot more. Then on top of that, you're able to answer just about any question you have about the data with your analytics that's layered on top. Most of you know how expensive data providers can be, uh, and you can easily spend a couple hundred grand a year. In this downturn, you need to save every penny that you can, and Well Database plans range from free for well-level data to $1,000 per month per user for the professional package, and that gets you their all-new decline analysis tool built in, which they're very excited about. Go check them out at welldatabase.com and tell them we sent you. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. It's bright and early on a Friday morning. We've got our buddy Ted Gutierrez from Security Gate here. Welcome, man. Hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, we're doing all right, man. I think we're Ted's probably got one of the. He's 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 in the runnings for one of the best <clears throat> radio voices. Yeah, I was gonna say you got a podcast voice. You know, it's just kind of a like Sunday. What is it? Sunday night slow jams. Sunday night slow jams. <laughs> hey, welcome, man. All right. Well, this is my first podcast, so don't get my head built up. Then I'll, then I'll stop doing what I. We're gassing do. you up too much. Be shopping for podcasts all over America. Be like, I promise, I got a good voice. Hey, look, these guys said it. They validated me. So, man, give us a uh, give us a, a high level overview of what Security Gate is. You know, tell tell listeners what you guys do. You know, kind of forty thousand foot view, and then we're just gonna start drilling in here. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so appreciate the opportunity to be here. SecurityGate.io is a three and a half year old product company based out of Houston, and uh, we help operational environments like oil and gas environments. We help the leaders within that become experts uh, at managing their cyber risk. We don't make cyber experts out of our customers, but rather we've built in uh, a really unique way where non-technical and technical people in tough environments like offshore rigs or downstream chemical facilities, um, you know, answer some questions about their overall business. And we built this really cool algorithm that, uh, that helps crunch all these frameworks that are cyber to tell them where their top risks are, because that's what they want to know. You know, where do we need to put our efforts on our budget? Where do we need to put our efforts on our people? And so at our core, we're helping them, you know, become leaders in that risk management space. And we thought that was important because you guys know um, how digitized, how connected mm -hmm. the oil field has become, the chemical space, <clears throat> transportation, you know, everything's connected to the internet. And so we're reaching that, that kind of momentous point in as an industry where 
Now there's risks we got to think about, yeah. about how we're trading data, how we're trading our customers' data, right? And so it's a little bit different than the financial world or the retail world where you're talking about credit cards and personal files. Yeah. Now we're talking about you know fire suppression systems. Now we're talking about GPS systems. Um, we're talking about, you know, there's a lot of impacts uh, that are really negative in nature that can come from a cyber attack. And I'm not one of those fire and brimstone kind of guys. At the end of the day, we've got to manage risk. We think that uh, a couple of years ago, we started the company knowing that there was a real need for this. So uh, really happy to be here. Uh, yeah. Really, really excited. It, well, I'm glad that we have you here because it's actually interesting. You know, I think we've only had one other company on the podcast that was related to cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And it's a growing issue. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. been an issue in energy, right? But it's only growing, like you said, as we get more digitized. I mean, everyone, you know, talks about, oh, IoT and- Every IoT uh, device is a new yeah, entry every, point. Every sensor that you have on a well or in a downstream facility, you every know, employee refinery, that you had. It's, a, it's an entry point and you just have all of these, these risks that are associated with yeah. new technology, right? And it seems like, you know, kind of on the outside looking in that we haven't seen a huge influx of startups looking to tackle those problems. So, you know, how, how does the, the ecosystem look? I mean, is it typically, you know, consulting firms that are coming in and helping these, these companies traditionally, or are there a lot of startups trying to tackle cybersecurity? That's a great question. I mean, the average person thinks, from an investment perspective, that cybersecurity is a pretty crowded space. But if you take a deeper look, it's it's a crowded space on the IT side. And the IT, think of you know the computers that are sitting on this desk right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of the different systems that um, that that make workflow possible between human beings. That's that's all kind of IT, right? So when you think about this other market segment called OT, it's operational technology. Back in the seventies, to maintain good maintenance and to keep everything moving really the way it's supposed to move is you have these major processes like opening a valve, closing a valve, uh, turning something on, turning something off. And they're, they're all connected. And, and these systems, which are all classified under industrial control systems or OT, they are found everywhere. Water transmission facilities, uh, offshore rigs, chemical companies. And so traditionally they've all been these systems are all talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the systems were built was to maintain a very efficient way to manage a a chemical facility or or some sort of facility. And so what's happened is we've, we've now the negative effects of all that connectivity, a lot of the systems that are in place were not designed with a security in mind because Mm -hmm. the internet wasn't even out back then. Right. (laughs) So now you have this traditionally, uh, a, a segment of the market that has never really had to worry about a cyber attack. And now they do. And yeah. so they're becoming more and more vulnerable. And so the operational technology or the ICS segment of um, that market has grown substantially in the last five or six, seven years. But 95% of the products that are out there are considered blocking and tackling solutions. They're like, put my box in your chemical facility and we'll block all cyber attacks, right? When you think about risk, it doesn't matter if you're blo- if you're protecting a basketball team that's traveling or you're protecting a chemical facility. It's about people. It's about process and technology. And that triangle of relationships about how trained are my people and what do they know to do and what's the process to happen if something else gets intertwined. You brought up a good point. Are consultants a big play in this industry? Absolutely. And they continue to be. You see some of the 
probably the top seven or eight consulting companies have probably grown two or three hundred percent in the last five years on training and building their capacity to support the OT environment. Mm-hmm. So where securitygate.io fit in, as we said, there's this underserved market. They have a lot of issues on the people and process side. We know that because we came from that. You know, I was at Shell, I was at Bureau Veritas, my co-founder was at Noble Drilling, Enbridge Energy. We know the the limitations of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. So when you took a look at all the technology that was out there in a blocking and tackling manner, there were locks on the doors. There were ways to protect with really expensive things. But spreadsheets were the way that you evaluated whether your client, your sister companies, your other facility had the people on the process side tightened. Mm -hmm. And so here I was, I was at Shell. I was working for engineers on the downstream, or not on the downstream, on the uh, completion side. We were doing risk management everywhere. So I was in Brazil, I was in Australia, I was in the North Slope of Alaska. And I was interviewing all the service companies on their risk management program, and I was using a spreadsheet. And I was like, wow, this has got to be a better way to do something. So I think that we're in a you know, relatively underserved market, and they're still breaking open seashells with rocks, right? So mm-hmm. we bring that digital you know, capability for them to understand where their risks are. Right now, you're absolutely right. Consultants take up the majority of that space. So we're working with consultants. Yeah. We're empowering them to do it better. Yeah. I always like businesses where you look at processes and you see the majority of the processes taking place on a spreadsheet. <laughs> it's usually a good indicator that there's like, there's find a- me. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I, so how do you, uh, like, what's your next startup? What are you doing? Anything that involves a manual process, <laughs> yeah. like I'm going to quietly just go and just take over that industry. You know, you talk about things that, you know, the spreadsheet at the center of being the solution going back to 2014 to, when I was at Shell at 2011 or whenever. Um, there's other things that happen. You know, the reason I started securitygate.io, I started it in February of 2017. Uh, we bootstrapped the company and I and I said, there's got to be a better way to, to assess risks. And the reason that I decided to start it um, was because the elections got hacked. Mm. And I said, you know what? That was what, in September, October, November? Mm-hmm. And I said, we got social media now, we have the internet, we have all these people, and now cybersecurity has become front and center, something that everybody's going to care about. Yeah. And so we just sort of looked inward and we were like, you can solve cybersecurity issues in a thousand different ways. Who do we want to help? Where's the underserved market? Three and a half years later, we're, we're really comfortable in where we are and we see the market just continuing to grow, right? So Yeah, yeah it's pretty funny. I remember... Sometime last year, I've gone on Google and I searched uh, cybersecurity and oil and gas and just, you know, see what came up. And there was an article, I can't remember if it was Wall Street Journal or who it was, you know, some Mm -hmm. uh, big media publication. And they were talking about how they were blown away by not just the lack of uh, security and energy, but also they were blown away. They're like some of these softwares and programs that these companies are running, you know, date to early 2000s. And they couldn't believe that, you know, such critical infrastructure to the country was, you know, so easily compromised. So, you know, you kind of look back over, you know, the last five years. You know, I know I think five years is a fair uh, time frame, but just the digitalization of energy mm-hmm. over the last five years. You had to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, we were already we were already easily compromised 
five years ago. And now we just keep advancing, advancing, advancing in the use of software and yeah. sensors. And that risk, I would imagine, just keeps growing well, exponentially. Well, you know, <clears throat> we did, I did a lot of traveling in the latter. I did a lot of traveling before COVID, right? Now I can't even travel <laughs> to HEB without somebody <laughs> stopping me and asking me if I have a mask. So I'm having to rethink my international travel plans. But I, I, I did a lot of traveling in like Q3, Q4 last year. Yeah. Because... I knew really well what the market looked like in energy, in manufacturing here. But as I started planning out my two, three year growth path, you know, who are we going to hire? What kind of, um, you know, what we, we operate in a, in a, in modules, right? So we take a framework, which is usually like a two or 300 page document that tells you how to fix all your cyber stuff, but they have one specific for Europe. They have one specific for, um, a major operator. And there's like literally hundreds of them. So which ones we build next kind of determines what footprint we can have either globally or industry vertical wise. Right. And so we just are rapidly making more modules. And so the reason I bring that up is because I went to Brazil last year. We went to the UK last year. And what I can, what I was pleasantly surprised to see is that the U S based energy business is probably the most I, I guarantee you they are the furthest forward when it comes to technology advancements and how they view their cyber risk and how they view their processes. And so what I think is important is to look at context. Yeah, I think we're behind. I think that uh, I think we've got a lot of movement forward. I think critical infrastructure doesn't have that top seat where people think about how much we're at risk. But we also got to take a look at we are really leading the charge. And, and so we just need to wear that badge of honor appropriately and keep moving forward because we are moving everybody else globally forward. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, that's my perspective. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. I mean, think about in the seventies and the eighties, right? To start a business, you needed what? Probably needed a legal, you probably needed a lawyer, probably needed somebody controlling your finances, need a CPA. Mm -hmm. Today, you want to start a company, you need somebody that's going to run your digital marketing team. You need somebody that has got some level of cyber experience to make sure that whatever you're building is secure, right? Yeah. And so, like, as we just keep going, like, this is here to stay. And we also see this, like, huge shift with people that are generally older. They're about to retire, whether it's chemical, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's oil and gas. I mean, you guys know there's this huge gap of talent leaving the industry. <clears throat> yeah. But I think the people that are coming up behind them, they all have a very healthy respect for what digital technology and the internet can do yeah. and how it can also hurt you. Right. And so I think that for the next 20 years, it's here to stay and, and, and it'll become thinking about, are we secure from a cyber cyber perspective that is ingrained in the next evolution of leaders in this space. Mm -hmm. It just is. Yeah. So, you know, you brought up an interesting point, you know, talking about the gap in, um, the workforce where you have this, this huge portion, you know, the senior level folks leaving and now it's, you know, kind of being passed on to the millennial generation. Right. But now you have the the younger part of the millennial generation leaving the industry now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in another 15 or 20 years, we're going to experience this other gap in the workforce. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with technology yeah. adoption in the future. You know, we may be s still having this, this same type of conversation. Or everybody like, I mean, you can't drill for oil working from home. So, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, there is some, like I tell people all the time, I'm like, I don't think the average person knows how much work goes into pumping their car full of fuel or getting tires on the road. 
Yeah. You know, I'm, I'll be truthful, man. I mean, I, I don't, I don't drive an electric car, right? And I'm a very late adopter personally. Um, there's got to be some, some more efficient ways that we can run our world. Yeah. There has to be, right? And I think that we're going to do that. But the idea that you can just stop oil and gas or you can stop big chemical plants, I don't think I don't think people really understand the implications of doing that. Yes, yeah. so there's that, there's steps to evolution, right? It doesn't just happen. It's an evolution. Overnight. It's not yeah. like okay, there's 38 of them today. We're going to go to 14 in two years. Mm-hmm. I think it's just how do we run those plants safer? How do we do them better? How, yeah. how do, and so that's the challenge that I think all of us have on our shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you got to and, and I think that the industry is taking it. You know, they, they they're, they're taking it seriously. Yeah. So. So diving back into the kind of the founding story is you, your co-founder, you guys decide, Hey, you want to start this company. You see an opportunity. You're like, Hey, we want to tackle oil and gas. How'd you go about building the product? And we've built software products in the past, but never building things specifically focused Mm -hmm. on uh, hardware and or cybersecurity. And so do you have to find developers that are kind of skilled on the cybersecurity side or can you just get general developer? Like how'd you guys go about actually building the product? Yeah. So that's like, how much time do we have? <laughs> that's um, that's a great question. You about so, 30 minutes, man. So. so bottom line is that my co-founder was at Noble Drilling and I I was owning another business in the in the risk management space. I was in, I was doing a lot of work in um, in infrastructure, like major infrastructure pieces. I was mm-hmm. doing risk management for major water power plants in India and stuff like that. So she called me one time. She says, hey, I know you used to work at Shell. I've got this com- this cyber compliance from Shell that we have to get all these offshore rigs certified to. Tell me what, you know, that's, I was on the other end of that spectrum when I was at Shell. I was actually certifying other companies to work with us. And I said, well, you know, in helping her kind of figure out how to, you know, just advise her on how to manage it, mm-hmm. spreadsheets were really the center of it. You know, yeah. The center of the way that she communicated back and forth to Shell and within Noble. And in the downturn, and she lost her job there. She called me and she says, hey, I think I want to start a tech company. And the first question that I asked her was, what do you want the technology to do? What do you want that product to solve? And truthfully, she had a lot of ideas. And I uh, I convinced her that she and I should start a service company first and go out into the market and provide whatever services are there or needed. And within a year or two, there would be this value proposition that just became pretty frothy. It just kind of came up. Mm-hmm. So, so she did that. Um, I ended up selling uh, my shares in the other company. And like I said, and when the elections happened, I decided to jump head first. And we yeah. decided to build a product that automates the questionnaire process in early 2017 because most of the contracts that she had gotten with some pretty nice companies locally mm-hmm. was helping the board of directors take this 300-page framework, distill it into questions, ask those questions of the staff, subjectively determine what those answers meant and provide it back up in a really unique way to the board. And I said, we could build a really awesome service company just doing cyber assessments for for folks. So we did that for a while. And then when I had enough of that product market fit, well, really the minimum viable product where we were selling it, selling it, selling it, selling it, I said, we could digitize 90% of this. And that's when we decided to get our first, uh, we, we took that to market and we did not, code a single line until we had a multi-year contract with with an enterprise so it's pretty interesting so you guys actually started off as a service-based 
company, not Security it. Gate. We we did with another company, gotcha. and then I said, and then truthfully, we ran two companies at the same time. Yeah, I took Security Gate, and my co-founder, she said, I'll continue to get contracts, mm-hmm. and then we took the idea of Security Gate to all those contracts and said, Hey, we have uh, we have something we want to look we have at, a product. and boom, I we like got it. our we got our first multi-year print contract. I hired a developer in an hour. We were a three-person team, <laughs> and we started building out what would be version one, which actually got released in January of 2018. Yeah. Three-person team, no money. I put 25000 into the company that year, and we just said, we're going to do this just organically. And so like that crazy story of having no capital, building the product real late at night, that was our story. And then we took that contract to the bank and actually got a line of credit. And then I started hiring one more person and then one more person. And then we got another contract and one more person. So we, we bootstrapped the company. Yep. So how do you, you know, you said that you hired a developer in an hour. I'm sure that if they're, you know, (laughs) were you talking to the developer before or we knew, so we knew that we needed a developer. So we had had a couple of folks that we were kind of interviewing. We met with a major and the major, liked our product yeah the mvp was a powerpoint okay (laughs) and it was it looked cool and and it was like here's where your top risks are and here's what you need to do next and they liked it and they turned to us and said can you do it sixteen thousand times and immediately i knew what they wanted they wanted every vendor and facility and person in their ecosystem to get that assessment and i said of course we can and i on the way home we called three or four different developers we hired one and that was the beginning of the story but you know that to answer your original question like tell us about how you built the product it's about you know what we think is important for a company especially one that is low on resources cuz you're bootstrapping you mm-hmm. have to listen you have to listen to your clients and i i i kept telling um, the product team when it turned into a five person team and then it turned into a seven person team and a 10 person team as i continued to tell them like don't build features that the customer is not ready to use yesterday because the worst thing you can do is build products in a silo, throw it over to marketing to talk about it, throw it over to sales to go sell it. We actually have the reverse. Is okay. I won't let, I'm not gonna say I won't let, the, cut, the product team is pretty much plug and play on their own. But the product team is so in tune with the client's needs that we already have a backlog, right? And that's I think where you wanna be as a product company. And so I think listening to the clients is what segregates us from I think other tech companies is, we have never built a feature that wasn't requested by a client or a prospect. Yeah, that's there's really- so much that I love there, so much there that we, we've we've worked with multiple companies in the past. We've had companies reach out and say, "Hey, we we need some advice." And so we get on the, we get on a call with them, and they've dumped in mm-hmm. ten million dollars hmm. into. I mean, this is mostly like going to be on the hardware side. They've dumped in, let's just say, ten million dollars into a piece of hardware. Yeah. They spent five years in R and D. Yeah, and but guess and, what? and three they, companies came out during the five years doing the same thing, right? I've seen it. And, yeah. then, and then they never talked to clients. They never <laughs> yeah. got a product market fit. They built something first and then tried to sell it rather than engaging with the market, understanding yeah. the market, listening to the market, and then building something around that. And I love the fact that you guys, you said you didn't write a line of code until you had a contract in place. It's true story. Yeah, that is super, super smart. It's it's actually really common in software. It used to be really common in software, but I think a lot of the young bucks in the space kind of forget that. I mean, that's how Bill Gates built Microsoft, was literally on hopes and dreams Whoa. until they had a contract signed. Well, I still think that 
So we still had a lot of workflows. We still had a lot of PowerPoint slides of, of what the wireframing was going to look like. But I think what we, what we did really well is we knew what we wanted to build. We forced ourselves to go validate that we were right. And, and, and so like, I can't over, I can't overstate the importance of knowing your industry. You know, we built the software that we wish we had in our previous lives at big enterprise companies. So we're like that story of you're at enterprise, you were making, uh, you didn't, you weren't making the impact in the company that you wanted to make, but you had a great life. Like, why would you walk away from that? Mm -hmm. I think you have to have a level of conviction that what you are going to build, you know, will be sold. So I wouldn't recommend that I start, like, I wouldn't start a company unless I had somebody with me that knew the space so incredibly well that they had a lot of conviction. Then you take that back and you say, Johnny, will you take a look at this? Hey, Sally, will you look at this? I have an Excel file. I'm talking about like not using spreadsheets. We used a lot of spreadsheets (laughs) at the beginning of the company, right? I had an Excel file and I had like, I think 20 or 30 recognizable companies and the name of some were all in the tabs on the bottom. And I spent, I want to say six or seven months on the road and I took all these PowerPoints to all these companies of people I knew, whether they were people from school or people I used to work with. And I would just ask them, like, if you were building a software, what would you build? And that was the most important spreadsheet I had ever made because all of the things that they wanted, I sent them over to my co-founder. And I said, this is the product features you need to build. And she took them all. It was 30 questions. She rank ordered them. And the product features that we built first were because of that. So like when, when people say, how did the product get the look and the feel that it has today. I would say people from McDonald's to Shell to BP, back over to uh, insurance companies, people that we knew, they're the ones that designed it. Yeah. And that's hard to do once you start getting some capital, once you start getting more people in the room. It's really easy to be like, now we're going to do this and now we're going to do this. And I think like my challenge as, as, as the leader of the, of the company is to not let don't get over our skis, right? Like mm-hmm. don't start building just because now you're well capitalized or now people know who you are or now you're talking at that trade show. Um, it's to keep a pretty humble customer-centric feature development at the core of what we do. And that that's like my number one like strategy every day I go yeah. into office. I saw a VC the other day tweet about how the most successful companies he's funded are ones where they have founders that come from a certain domain experience and uh-huh. they experience the problems firsthand yeah. and then they develop a solution. And it sounds like you guys, you know, That's you fit close. in that boat. Yeah. You saw it as end users. You, you saw these problems and you went out and developed a solution for it. Well, yeah. And, and, and I think that we also, that was probably pretty good in 2018 and 2019 to get traction. But as we moved into 2020, you know, the biggest thing that I've learned about growing a product company and even having a remote capacity to scale it quickly has nothing to do with the product. It has everything to do with the people that are on your team. Right. Mm -hmm. So like my full-time job is making sure that the right people are on the team. And sometimes people move into different seats because that's what the company needs, but getting, the people that are next on the team that have even the remotest experience as well, like we did, that's important, right? So I'll give you an example of a developer we have on our team. He was at uh, one of the big consulting firms doing it for 10 years. Like he's good at his job. Like he's moving up fast. And one day he comes home and tells his wife he wants to be a software developer. 
and he was in a risk management space that not many people know about, right? So here's this guy that has all this unbelievable information about how big companies manage their risk in their ecosystem, but he can't transfer it to any company that's out there because he wants to become a software developer. So he goes back to a coding school and he learns how to code. And when I saw his resume, I was like, we have to get this gent. And the reason was because he has that experience. He knows what the pains are. He knows what his users that are going to use his code, he knows how they think. He used to advise them. And so like where we've been really lucky as a company is bringing on people that have the experience in that industry. And um, and I think that's like the the like the DNA of our success. I'm not trying to pull in people that maybe had crazy exits over here or they, you know, they know how to code better than anybody else. I'm looking for people that like get it. Because yeah. if I can step out of the way and let them build the software that they think is awesome and then just encourage them to go back with the clients, like it really is like a they're plug and play. I'm out. It's actually you know? a, it's a really interesting way of looking at it because you know we we've worked with developers and really smart developers mm-hmm. and you know they didn't have any oil and gas experience but mm-hmm. they still came in and just fucking crushed it. I mean just absolutely killed it. But right. looking at it, you know you know, say that, you know, this guy is a consultant for 10 years, he goes mm-hmm. to a coding school, you know, maybe he's not, you know, the top 1% of Coders. programmers, yeah. but he gets the end. And then he starts getting end. excited. Yes. And then, so I'll challenge him. It's really not me. It's my product officer. She's the one that was like, we have to hire this guy right now. And I was like, why? And she's like, I don't care if we need another developer. We need this guy because he gets it. I don't have yeah. to teach him what that risk manager's problems are. So I'll give you another example. Um, what, what I think uh, a lot of the people on our team have in common is that wherever they were before, they may not have been in like a cyber OT risk management space. Some of them were. They weren't at their full capacity, right? And I had one person who had five managers the year prior, and she was just like, this is a tech company. And they were like moving fast. They had $100 million behind them. And she was just like, this is not going anywhere like this is i'm not feeling good about my job she came out of security gate like i can do i can do better than that and she's just taking the company to the next level in her own right i had another guy who was working in a bio lab and he was like you know this is just not what i wanted to do with my life i really want to develop mobile stuff this guy developed in under one year our android and our ios mobile application and it was his first time ever doing it and now he's like the mobile guy on our staff (laughs) so i think that just as much as finding people that maybe have had a unique experience that then drives a more holistic way of them doing their jobs. That's one thing. But I would also say like, I think people get really confused on who they need on their team next. I like people that want to build something and they have a real conviction behind why. Mm -hmm. And so like, I would give that advice. Like, how do we build a product? How are we building this team? How are we going out? It's like, find people that like really want either a second chance or they really feel like they need, they're not making a mark and give them the opportunity to just run with it. And it doesn't always work out. Um, but we've had a, and, and we've had to build like that because Houston doesn't have a lot of software developers, customer success reps for SaaS, sales mm-hmm. SaaS. I mean, we don't have a lot of people like that. So like what we look for is like, show me where you've been and kind of what your failures are. Show me your scars. And then I know that that person can handle the, the toughness of being in a company like this. And yeah. you've had to do that, you know, in Silicon Valley and places like that, I think they're actually like, they're worse off because everybody thinks 
that their salary should be like way up here. And everybody thinks that they need this much money to raise and grow a company. When in reality, like raise the minimal amount you need, hire the minimal amount of people, but make sure they're the right people and make sure that the customers guide you. Like mm-hmm. that's been our recipe. And, and I think you'll end up spending less money and you'll get a lot less frustrated. Yeah, you know, we were just talking about this uh, before we started recording uh-huh. um, about digital wildcatters. And, you know, when we look at how much capital we need and people are like, is that enough? And yeah. I look at, I think that if you raise too much capital, it can be toxic to a, a company's. Yeah, dive into that. Because I, I agree. But like, why do you why do you think, why, why the word toxic? Cause because, you- because for me, I think that if you're overcapitalized, it, it can have a negative impact because you lose your scrappiness. I there's agree. there's something to be said for bootstrap companies that yeah. you get up every day and you just fucking claw. Right. And you know, you you you're, you're just You have to make it. Yeah, right? you have to make it. So there's this it's it's kinda like what I like to think is um we all know how to play ball, but think of the shot clock in basketball. It's like you gotta make a play, guys. Like you, you got to make a play because when the clock goes out, you're done. Mm-hmm. And I think that a bootstrap company or one that raises capital um, and doesn't go over the top, they know they have a finite amount of time. They know they have a finite amount of resources, people, and human. I'd use the word resource a lot because it's time, money, and people. Yeah. And when you're, I think the right play is to whether it's you don't have enough people, um, you don't have enough uh, money. It's like putting on a, a wool sweater that's a little too small and it itches and it doesn't feel good. And so you want to grow to that next level. And you're like, if I could just get two more clients, then I can get that person on board. It keeps you hungry, right? It keeps you hungry, right? Yeah. So, but at the same time, I think that, you know, we had, we had to decide that we were going to raise capital. And mm-hmm. I remember where I was when I realized I don't have this staff position filled. I don't have this staff position. And now I'm working for or I'm going after a, a prospect and I know that I'm going to need those positions filled to really balance the risk that this company is taking with us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, I think that if you want to scale your company and you want to grow, you have to not shed the entirety of a bootstrap mentality, but you have to accept, okay, now it's time for us to go raise capital. Yeah, especially in the energy business. I mean, you, you got to look at, you know, say it's a Shell or whoever yep. is using your software. They're going to look at the credit capacity of the, the totally. software that they're using, totally. right? And they want to know that you're well capitalized and you have resources to be able to handle their work. So, um, you know, it's a balance. Yeah, it's a balance. It's a balance. It's a balance. You know, we're t- when we were talking about it, you know, I told you, it's like, I, I tell people what we're raising and they're like, is that enough? And I'm like, yeah. well, that gets us 18 months down the road. And if look, you get if more we- than 18 to 24 months. So let's, let's assume, let's assume the math here. I think the strong thing you should do is plan for 18 months. And then your hope is that, you know, cash flow is going to give you 24. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, pr- and hopefully more than that, maybe to 30. But your calculation should be about 18 months. And why I like 18 months is 18 months is enough time for you to say, here's the next milestone that we're going to hit. Here are the resources we're going to allocate to it. And you, and you can't, it doesn't give you enough time to screw up. You can screw up like maybe once, but it forces you to make positive things happen. When you get three years worth of runway, I think you can sort of sit back on the couch a little bit, you know. So, every, uh, that's what I'm saying. It, it, every it, founder it, it, it will can... go through a post-traumatic stress <laughs> once you sign your your docs, and it's like for two weeks you're like, "Wow, okay, 
I can actually breathe. Like, well, that's what, yeah, exactly. So raising capital is hard in itself, oh right? I mean, gosh. that's a full-time job. Yeah, you know, was, anyone man. that hasn't done it, I mean, let me tell you that raising capital is hard. And, and so it takes you, about eight times longer than what you think. Yeah. It's and take. so then you get, you <laughs> yeah. get the money in the bank and then exactly. He's like, okay, now I can, I can breathe a little bit. I can take two weeks. So off. like, I like to spend money before I get it. It's actually the, how I keep a bootstrap mentality. So <laughs> Me and so you are the same. I spent, I like already had, co you know, we did a lot of events last year. And so we're going to be speaking at some big events um, this year. Hopefully we'll all be able to go. But whether it's a feature set that you're promising to a client or whether it's a, an event that you sign up for, you know, I like to force ourselves to be in a position where it's like, we better raise that capital or close some deals because I already know what my budget is for the full next 18 months. Yeah. And so I think that there's that, it's kind of like standing on the, on the, uh, the edge it's dangerous, but the closer you get to it, if you own that edge and you really are just honest with yourself, you know, I like, I like always trying to balance out, let's push it really hard, but let's pull it back. Let's push it really hard. And so that, I think that's the job of the founders or, or, or those key leaders to recognize you can't just stop what you're doing to go raise capital. Oh, and then when I get capital, I'll make a financial plan. I mean, it's hard doing all these things at once. Um, and, and I think you got to own that bleeding edge of, is this the right move? Because if every move you make is, you already know what the ROI of that's going to be. You already know how much money it's going to take. You have this perfect budget. Then you, I don't think you're pushing the company hard enough. You don't have enough risks. You know, you're not, you're not trying to take those on. So it's a very healthy balance. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you know, I, I just think, I think it was like last month on Twitter, there was this big debate between bootstrap versus funded. Really? Well, yeah, big, big debate on VC Twitter. And I, I, think I just it's think, so hard to one, I, I don't understand, so many asterisks I don't understand what's wrong with our culture where we think everything's so binary and yeah. extremes because it's really a balance. I mean, you can bootstrap and get your MVP you know, just like you guys did yeah. and start building. But then when it comes time to scale, it's like, hey, maybe it's time that we, we take on some capital. But it's it's really, I mean, the, the point of a startup is you need to be able to stay agile and fluid and yeah. understand where the market is, where your business is. You and brought what, up a good point, where the market is, right? So yeah. one of the reasons that we decided to bootstrap is because we knew the industry needed this solution. But we also knew that they were going to be really slow cycles to realize it. You know, if you said, you know, I think there's a use case for raising an insane amount of capital to deploy really effectively, really quickly on, on one thing, which is we know the addressable market is ready for this. And we feel like if we move fast enough, we can get maybe first movers advantage or even second. There's, there's real value there. When you're dealing with the underlying addressable market that is complex, that is in a state of continual, like slow, slow evolution, that defines our market, the ones that we're in. You know, we're talking about manufacturing companies, we're talking about um, oil and gas companies that generally are not the fastest to adopt new technologies. Yeah. So, we, what was really challenging for security8.io is we knew where we would be in 2017. We knew where we would be in 2020. And I think we've accomplished that where mm -hmm. we wanted to be. Could we have grown three, four times faster? Probably not. It didn't matter how much money you put on it. The cycles of leaders deciding and recognizing that cybersecurity was going to be important for their job, that was not as fast as people you know, in the social media world that, you yeah. know, that maybe want to raise mm -hmm. $100 million. So, you know, 
it goes back to know your market. Yeah. Like you got to be really honest with yourself. I'll be, I'll be truthful. We have had, um, when we decided to raise capital, we've had really a, just, we've been super lucky with the investors that we had going from, um, ourselves to angel to seed, um, and then, and then moving up at every different stage, there were investors that wanted to push us faster. And mm-hmm. I was like, Hey dude, trust me. I know what we're doing. <laughs> and he's Pump like, no, man, we need to go. We need to go, go, go. Hire that position. Hire that position. Like, dude, trust me, man. We, you can't overstate understanding your market and knowing how fast or how slow it's going to be. Yeah. You know, enterprise sales cycles, you know, you're waiting for, you know, what oil prices do for, hardware and software refresh and some of these different legacy systems. You're mm-hmm. looking at some of the complementary solutions that are raising tons of capital and seeing them go and fail and maybe even have a down round or maybe having to, uh, you know, there's a lot of acquisitions having taken place in the blocking and tackling side of operational technology. So we're watching all that. We're watching and we're, we know where we fit in mm-hmm. and it's super hard to sit in a room and know you can go and take on all this different market share but you're actually patiently waiting because you're waiting for the right timing. So let's real quick, one more question before then of the podcast, you know, let's talk about the market for security gate because you guys have been really focusing on energy. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously that's where you and your partner came from. Mm -hmm. So those are the problems that you understood, but security gate could be applied to many different industries. I'm sure. Um, Do you want to elaborate on that? a little? So when we first came out with the, with our initial MVP, people thought we were crazy in Houston. I won't name any names, but there was a lot of people (laughs) that didn't support. And here's why. We purposefully went into nine different markets. We had schools as clients. We had law firms as clients. We had hospitals as clients, CPA firms. And I also had offshore drillers and I had oil companies. Mm -hmm. And people were like, oh, they'll never make it because... And I'm, you know, we were supported by a lot of people in the industry. Don't get me wrong. Houston wrapped their arms around us. But some people were like, whether it was in Austin, Dallas, or Houston, like, y'all are never going to make it because you're not focused enough. Mm-hmm. Well, what we were focused on was finding the right market that was really underserved. And so we took an entire year to test every market out there. We decided to to go focus all of our efforts. Luckily and happily, I we tested the market. We tested everybody. And we said, you know where there's just a blue ocean is in industrial control systems because the critical infrastructure sectors, yeah, they're like slow to move, but they're seeing this as a challenge. So we decided to really focus in that vertical. And there's a lot of other solutions like security gate, I'll be truthful, but none that have the DNA of critical infrastructure. And that's why we decided when we started to scale up and we said, who are we really going to serve? What are the next 25 features the users all are in the critical infrastructure space. They have unique needs that bankers don't have, that retail industries don't have, that healthcare industry don't have. And so I think that there's a, you know, it's a competitive space. But for us, we like that, you know, the critical infrastructure space is where we want to be. So yeah. if you look at critical infrastructure, there's there's over 10 different sectors. Um, and we have a plan to, you know, to go into each one of those. Right now it's Primarily transportation, manufacturing, and and oil and gas, and gotcha. uh, really like where we're at. We got some really great clients that that are either you know kind of baselining their understanding of their cyber risk, or they've been doing that for a while, and now they're using the product to accelerate their risk management program. And so those are going to be where we stay. So love to yeah be in a year. Maybe we add another sector or two 
when we're maybe on the podcast, you yeah. guys let me come back. But <laughs> that's kind of yeah. where we are. We think that the industry, we're pretty bullish on the industry. We're bullish on the people within it. And so that's where we're going to stay. Awesome. You know, I'll give you a shout out real quick too for bringing all the swag. Uh, Ted said he, he listened to our Cottonwood that's right. uh, that's right. podcast nope. last week and heard us talking about the swag. I did, that I did, a, wearing, I did so. a 180 on 59 <laughs> to go back to the office when I heard everybody was bringing swag. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. So if you if you stop by the the studio, we got some security gate swag up here. Hey, Ted, where can people find you guys um, if they want to reach out and inquire about your services? Is your URL is at securitygate.io? There it is. There, there it is. is. Awesome. So absolutely. we'll include a link to that. And then are you on LinkedIn? As yeah, well? absolutely. Cool. LinkedIn is where we're finding kind of most of the people talking right now. So awesome for all the startups out there looking for what's working on lead gen. Uh, LinkedIn is great. So either way, securitygate.io. Happy to. Uh, to help in any way we can. Awesome, man. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yep. All right, guys, please take two seconds. Uh, leave us a rating review. Also, I haven't plugged this in a while. We're, we're, we're starting to get more active on YouTube. Okay. We're putting out a lot more video content. We kind of took a break for a minute. It's actually really time. Can put out a consuming. vlog the other day. We bought a, a MMA octagon. So yeah, so we're actually going to start putting all of our guests in the ring. And so we're just going to start, you know, speeding the shit out that, of them. That's, that's the right of passage it. to come on <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> you got to get beat up first. <laughs> so go check that out. So, uh, you know, subscribe to that. We're going to be putting out a ton more content. We're actually going to start putting this podcast out on video uh, as well. We tried to do it uh, this last episode. We, we had some technical difficulties, but we're going to get back on that. So go check it out and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Come, come, come.